This evening I'd like to talk about compassion. This path, this journey, is founded upon the twin pillars of wisdom and compassion. In this teaching, they are likened to being the two wings of a bird. They balance each other, they complement each other, they complete each other, and they nourish each other. In a very fundamental way, these two aspects of the teaching really cannot be divorced from each other. In one of the Buddha's suttas, it said, the one who clings to the void and neglects compassion will not reach the highest awakening. But one who practices only compassion will not gain release from suffering. Wisdom without compassion is so very often the mind which is disconnected from the heart. And when we are disconnected from our hearts, from the hearts of life, what we tend to be lacking in is any profound vision of interconnectedness. The absence of interconnectedness means that insight lacks the power of transformation, inwardly or outwardly. Detachment, which is not balanced by love, is a detachment which cannot heal either the world around us or the pain within us. Detachment without love doesn't know the means to touch the heart of another or our own. And wisdom without compassion easily can become a kind of spiritual invincibility which then degenerates into passivity or withdrawal or feelings of separation. It is very easy, of course, to be filled with a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, a lot of solutions, to have all kinds of good advice, a wealth of wonderful answers and solutions to suffering. But this wealth of advice and this wealth of knowing, no matter how well-intentioned it is, if it is disconnected from compassion, from empathy, it rarely finds a listener. It rarely finds a home. The mystic once said, of what avail is the open eye if the heart is blind? Wisdom really does require compassion to bring it to life. Compassion gives the power of transformation to the understanding that actually grows within us. But it is equally clear that compassion needs to be balanced by wisdom. Insight, understanding, deepening in wisdom brings to us a great deal of both courage and equanimity. And it brings that to the compassion that we feel. It is actually through insight, through wisdom, that compassion finds right action. 
It finds the right words. It finds the right directions and applications. Because wisdom, the very purpose of wisdom, the very direction of insight is to dissolve separation, to dissolve division. The separation that at times seems so apparent between the inner and the outer, the divisions that often seem so substantial between I and you, us and them. An insight in in dissolving separation dissolves too so many of the value judgments that are the shadows of separation. The value judgments that easily come to our minds about what is worthy or what is unworthy of compassion. What is inferior, what is superior, what is deserving or undeserving of compassion. In dissolving those separations, compassion then in itself is transformed. It becomes really not a response of mine. I'm not feeling compassion for you. It becomes not a response of mine to your suffering, nor is it even a response that I direct inwardly to my own pain. In a way, compassion is purified by wisdom. It is transformed simply into a response of the heart and of the mind that embraces suffering, that embraces pain, that embraces difficulty, wherever it is found, without any thought or demand of a particular kind of result coming from that compassion. In traveling this path, I think it is really important not to think of compassion as some sort of incidental or desirable reward that we will gain as a result of developing sufficient wisdom. It's equally important not to think of wisdom as some kind of destination, arrival point that we will reach in the future. So often our very linear ways of thinking set up these hierarchies and alienate us from what is really possible for us in this moment. Sometimes we think, well, after I've suffered enough, after I've gone through enough pain, after I've worked things out, then I will come to a place where suddenly I will be wise. Too often we think of these words such as wisdom and compassion in capital letters, heavily underlined, goals to be attained. Or we think of them even in terms of lofty images that we project into the future. Every time we do that, we are not actually looking at what wisdom, what compassion means to us. What do those words mean to us? What do they mean in the context of our lives? They so often are qualities that are obscured by the incredibly exotic images that we dress them up in. 
We may think of wisdom, we might think of the Buddha, or great Zen masters, or Jesus, or someone who wears a particular uniform. When we think of wisdom, we at times think of the authorities that have had the power to impress us in our lives. Just as at times we think of compassion, only in terms of really heroic or noble kinds of actions or deeds. We've probably heard of the stories of great sacrifices that different bodhisattvas make. Mother Teresa. And we get these kind of inflated ideas of what compassion is. We can admire, of course, people who live incredible lives of integrity and service in the midst of conflict, in the midst of pain. We can be inspired by so many of these people. But we need to take care that we don't become so lost in our admiration that we cast ourselves into some sort of image of inferiority or inadequacy, or that we forget to ask ourselves what wisdom and compassion actually mean in our own lives, our own hearts, our own journeys, that we don't forget to ask what our own capacities for wisdom and compassion are in this moment. Sometimes compassion is described as the bodhisattva's path. And traditionally, the bodhisattva is defined as someone who has made a very profound inner dedication to the liberation of all beings, to the freedom of all beings, to the end of all suffering. And the consciousness which is infused with this aspiration is called bodhicitta, or the mind of enlightenment. In the bodhisattva path, no distinction at all is made between wisdom and compassion. To be truly awake is to be truly sensitive, is to be free from clinging and division, to be open to be spacious, to be sensitive, is to be compassionate. And to be compassionate is to be awake. It is probably difficult, maybe, for us to think of ourselves in the light of traveling a bodhisattva's path. In fact, our minds can no doubt produce a whole catalog of reasons why we cannot possibly live a life of such dedication, a life of such clarity of intention, a life of such commitment. We might think, well, you know, first of all, of course, I have so many problems myself. I have so many difficulties myself. How can I possibly think of contributing to the liberation or the freedom of anyone else? We might think there are so many people who don't deserve being liberated. Think of all those people who've wounded me, who've hurt me, who've offended me, all those nasty, terrible people in the world that they should suffer first. 
and then they can be liberated after. Right. We may think it is absolutely nonsense anyway to think in terms of all beings being liberated. And we look around the world around us and we see the levels of delusion, the levels of confusion and violence and ignorance. We probably think, well, there's a lot of beings in this world who've got a long way to go, further than us. <laughs> And they need to work out their own stuff. We may think from our own experience, well, look at all these things that happen in me, all this greed, all this selfishness, all this defensiveness. I can never be like Mother Teresa. I can never be like a Dalai Lama. In the realm of the logical mind, of course, these are all valid objections. These are all seem perfectly reasonable things to think about. In the path of the Bodhisattva, there is no interest in logic. We will never be like someone else. We will never live like someone else. We will never become like someone else, no matter how much we admire them, or envy them, or try to emulate them. We are unique, just as they are unique. We can only be ourselves. To listen to our own hearts, to listen to the ways in which each one of us can grow, a spirit of service, a spirit of generosity, a spirit of awakening, Part of that growth, part of that depth is very much linked to trust. Trusting that wisdom and compassion, that these are not the territory only of great saints, great heroes, special or blessed people. The people that we admire in our lives and in our worlds were born just as we are born with the possibilities of being awake, the possibilities of opening, the possibilities of learning and of listening. We hold the seeds of these possibilities within our own hearts. These are the seeds that we learn how to nurture. First, we must listen inwardly and learn to trust in our own possibilities. Nor would it be true to say that the path of the Bodhisattva is only the ter territory of heroes and warriors in the spiritual life. The path of the Bodhisattva is actually the path of every single human being who holds within themselves the capacity to love and the capacity to forgive, who yearns inwardly really deeply longs inwardly for the end of the unendurable, for the end of all of the ways that pain manifests in our world and in our lives, who deeply yearns for the end of all the many forms of conflict that can shadow our world and shadow our own lives. 
the path of the Bodhisattva is the path of every single human being who genuinely cares, deeply cares for the happiness, for the well-being, of the integrity of all life. We don't actually need any special credentials to travel the path of the Bodhisattva. It is a, the path of compassion is a path of celebration. It is a path in which we celebrate the possibilities that lie within each of us. A path in which we actually nurture and nourish and celebrate our own capacities for letting go, for generosity, for service, for forgiveness, amidst the challenges of our own lives. It is not a path that begins later, that begins when our lives have come to a place of order, a place of calmness, a place of tranquility. It is a path that begins amidst our own challenges. There is, I feel, such a a tragic tendency in so many people that gets transferred to this journey where we focus so strongly and emphasize so strongly the imperfect, the unwholesome, what is wrong within ourselves. And of course we have a many of us have a whole history of a spiritual history behind us which is one of blaming and shame and telling us all the things that we did wrong. And it is a tendency that gets transferred to our meditation where we are so often so conscious of all the obstacles that seem to face us in our lives and in ourselves that deny liberation. Sometimes in a very distorted way this practice can become an exploration of the bottomless depths of our own personal imperfections. And then our response to that at times is to think, well, in order to find compassion, in order to be wise, in order to be liberated, we must make the effort to transcend, to overcome, to cut through, to overpower these endless imperfections. This is the path of uh, neurosis. This is not the path of compassion. It is not the path of wisdom. In the light of that kind of thinking, it seems almost a kind of sacrilege to think of celebration in the midst of so much misery. Instead, the responses that we tend to come up with as being more appropriate are the responses of self-denial, of self-punishment. And then compassion and wisdom, of course, are endlessly postponed. You have probably noticed here the most curious and ingenious habit of the I to endlessly pick up new descriptions. And how easily the mind focuses on those descriptions grasping. I have anger and I work on my anger and I get through that and then I have greed and then I work on that in my next retreat and I get through that and then my program for my next retreat becomes 
working on jealousy. There is an ingenious tendency of the mind, of the eye, to constantly accumulate new definitions, which then become new objects to work through. To do this, quite frankly, is to endlessly postpone real awakening, because what is never questioned is that center which is always accumulating. There is only ever one place where wisdom, where compassion can be realized, and that is in the moment we are in, the moment we're experiencing and our responses to it. How many opportunities do we actually have to nurture and to deepen our own capacities for understanding and our own capacities for compassion? They are endless. They are countless and they lie before us. The opportunities for nurturing wisdom and compassion lie in the ways, in in the thoughts we so often hold, which are judgmental, which are denying, which are negating. The place of wisdom and compassion is in relationship to the images we cling to, which lead us to withdraw from another person, to separate ourselves from them. The place of wisdom and compassion is in the relationship to the moment in which our own fears and doubts arise. When we listen to a siren in the night, when we listen to a cry of pain, when we listen to the person beside us who distracts us, where do we think the opportunities lie for deepening in understanding, for deepening in generosity? The path of the Bodhisattva is a path of willingness, being willing to open in an allowing, in a conscious way, our own hearts to every moment that we are in, to see that the people we see before us, that we so easily judge or deny, they are ourselves in a different form. They are ourselves in different circumstances. This path is not really about struggling to find the right actions and the right words, not struggling to make decisions about who we should feel compassion for. It is trusting, actually, that the right actions, the right words, the right responses are born of the awakened heart. The Bodhisattva path is called a great vehicle. It's called the great vehicle. The reason it is called the great vehicle is it, because it is a demanding vehicle, in a way. It is an extraordinarily challenging vehicle. It doesn't really impact upon us when we feel lukewarm or spiritually indifferent. It is a path which asks of us to be endlessly unconditional in our giving, in our allowing, and in our generosity. It asks of us to be endlessly unconditional in our forgiveness, in our letting go, and in our loving. And sometimes that feels very hard. Sometimes that feels very hard to be unconditional. But quite frankly, it is much harder and much more painful 
not to live in that way. Generosity, letting go, forgiveness, and love. They have only one effect. They bring great joy. They bring great freedom. They bring great warmth. They bring great intimacy to our lives. The absence of that unconditional nature of those qualities brings only pain. Anger, denial, holding, resentment brings only conflict and limitation. These are the primary lessons of wisdom. These are the primary lessons of wisdom that we need to learn. It is much harder to live without wisdom and compassion than it is to live with it. Out of learning these lessons, I feel our hearts really do begin to awaken because we really appreciate that there's nowhere else to go, that there's no other way to live. Nurturing compassion, it is a conscious path. It requires reflectiveness, requires inquiry, requires a certain willingness to reflect. And I think there are really four, probably others, but four essential qualities of mind and heart which are intrinsic to the development of wisdom and compassion. They are the qualities of imagination, of equanimity, of courage, and of insight. Now, we never can actually know entirely what another person's experience or another person's pain actually feels like. Nor can anyone else ever actually know fully how we feel when we are in pain, when we are in conflict, no matter how loving, no matter how much empathy that other person has. That doesn't mean that there lies between us and another person an incrossable division, that we are always separate or always locked within our own separate worlds of pain or conflict. Imagination is a capacity of our hearts and minds which actually bridges that gap. And perhaps it might seem strange to speak of imagination in the context of this path where we are again and again talking about seeing what actually is, you know, to get out of our minds. The imagination I'm talking about is not the imagination of fantasy, of, you know, trying to construct mental images of what another person feels like or trying to contrive responses kind of imagination I'm speaking about really comes from an open heart and an open mind. It is a capacity of creativity that actually enables us to, and encourages us, to receive the pain of another, to receive our own pain in a consciousness that is not concerned with judgment, with preconceived ideas or with prejudice. It is a creative faculty of our minds that actually enables us and encourages us to extend the horizons of our own consciousness beyond the limitations 
of our individual experience, our individual world. It takes an enormous stillness to listen well to the world around us. When we look at a picture in a newspaper of a, of a starving child or a homeless person or a street kid being murdered in Brazil, or we look at these pictures endlessly in our lives. And there is a way of looking where they are another statistic sort of separate human being, another appeal to our bank accounts. There's a way of looking in which there's a dismissiveness already arising. There's a way of looking, too, from a place of stillness where we listen and look so well that within the impressions we receive, we are constantly receiving the message of our common humanity that differs in its external dress and it differs in its external details. Fear, loss, pain, loneliness, they express themselves in many different forms. But if we take away the details, we truly understand that there is not one single thing that I can experience that has not been experienced before by another. That fear is fear. That pain is pain. That loss is loss. Just as happiness is happiness. And safety is safety. And love is love. To be able to listen so well to the impressions and the messages that our world is constantly bringing us, what response can there possibly be in the face of that common humanity about compassion? Imagination is a way of extending ourselves beyond our personal boundaries. And out of it arises a quality of passion quality of dedication and commitment, which is needed because it is passion in our lives that actually moves us to serve, to give, to support, to forgive. Passion energizes our own capacity to feel, our own capacity for compassion. And then it finds its form in actions, in words, in thought, in the ways in which we extend ourselves Without that empathy and without that passion, it is so easy to be locked within the confines of our individual experience, concerned with our limited goals, our limited aspirations and achievements. I think it is empathy, it is passion that encourages us to step beyond those boundaries, to acknowledge that each one of us is a conscious participant in the creation of this moment. And as such, each one of us can be a conscious participant and is a conscious participant in the creation of our world. The second quality, which is important, is the quality of equanimity. Now, sometimes equanimity is interpreted as being somehow distant or removed or somehow disconnected. 
But I think that there's a wonderful a Tibetan teacher once described equanimity as being equally near, equally close to all things. Equanimity is important because the greatest obstacles to compassion lie in aversion and in attachment. When we experience aversion, we close our minds and we close our hearts. We turn away. Aversion leads us to turn away from things or people that offend us, that threaten us, that we dislike. How can we possibly open our hearts when we are entangled endlessly in this process of turning away. Attachment leads us, attachment to thoughts, attachment to experiences, attachment to pleasure, leads us to defend, to protect, to try and pursue. Again, how can there ever be an open heart when we are lost within the world of possessiveness? We need wisdom and equanimity and letting go, really to appreciate the incredible subjectivity of our aversion and our attachment. When there's no equanimity, we live within a world of enemies and allies, of friends and opponents. Living in a world where there are enemies and allies all around us, is to live in a world of such dualities that compassion is extraordinarily difficult because we are always being pulled towards, pushed away from. How are our enemies created? And how do we create our allies? It takes an immense equanimity to let go of our labels, to let go of our labels that creates these dualities. Letting go that comes from equanimity is actually an act of compassion for ourselves. The holding that is the basis of aversion and attachment is an act of violence towards ourselves, towards the world around us an act of withdrawal, to appreciate interconnectedness that comes through letting go of our labels, letting go of our subjectivity, I think really does open to us a very profound sense of interconnectedness. The universality of the capacity to feel that just as we long For the end of fear, the end of sorrow, the end of conflict, so does all life. Just as we long for peace, for happiness, for safety, for freedom, so too does all life. Does learning how to be present in an equanimous way with what our lives bring to us. The story of the, the gardener probably know that there was this person who was intent on creating the perfect garden, the perfect lawn, actually, not the perfect garden, and went to all this incredible effort 
leveling the ground and buying the best grass seed and putting the right fertilizer on and giving it the right amount of water. And then sitting back and watching carefully, waiting for the grass to grow. And of course, as it does, the grass came up in this wonderful lawn. This person began to be so filled with admiration for this lawn. Got out one morning, there was a dandelion growing in the lawn. Got out with the weed killer, got out with the trowel to dig up the dandelion. The lawn was perfect again. The next morning, there was two dandelions. Got out again with the weed killer, the trowel, making this lawn perfect again. The next morning, there was more. This poor person became frantic. How can they ever have a perfect lawn? Sought all this advice. Rode away to these gardening societies. Got all these experts. Finally wrote this letter to this, you know, renowned lawn grower. <laughs> what shall I do about my dandelions? How can I get rid of my dandelions? They are spoiling my perfect lawn. And the answer came back, Sir, I suggest that you learn to love them. The third quality is quality of courage. It is no easy challenge for us to live in a compassionate way. No easy challenge for us to live in an open and loving way. It is very hard to open our hearts to pain, whether it's in others or in ourselves. It seems so much easier at times, so much more attractive to avoid, to find what is safe through distraction, through closing down. We do it sometimes because listening to the pain of others sometimes echoes our own fear of pain. Sometimes we doubt in our capacity to accommodate pain. It takes immense courage and patience and perseverance to stay with the difficult without fantasizing or creating demands that it should be fixed in a way that is acceptable to us. Courage does bring us that willingness to stay with the difficult, to allow it to find its own unfoldment in an environment where we are surrounding pain with love, with care, with sensitivity. It is a path that also requires wisdom, so much insight. Compassion requires so much insight. What is attachment and aversion all about? But living in a superficial way, seeing our labels, seeing our conclusions, seeing our images, judging right and wrong, which leads us to reject one thing as we pursue another. And so much of these images, so much of these judgments, they tell us such a great deal about ourselves, about our own histories, our own experience. Our judgments never tell us with accuracy one single thing about the truth of another person. But those judgments reinforce separation. They reinforce that sense of self and other. And so we struggle. How can we honestly pass judgment on the fear or the pain or the sorrow 
that finds its form in the actions of another person. How can we honestly judge that? In Zen Monastery once, a group of very conscientious students was gathered together for a long retreat. And, you know, they were, you know, kind of proud of how ethical they were and how dedicated. And one day, one of the students was caught stealing from another. And the, everyone else was very upset. How can this person disturb our retreat? How can they act in such a way they shouldn't be here? And they went to the Zen master, and the master said, let it go, let it go, let it go. It happened again. This person was caught stealing again. So the students drew up a petition. They went to the teacher and they said, look, this doesn't belong. It has no place here. We're all going to leave unless you ask this person to go. And the teacher said to them, well, perhaps this is right that you go. You obviously clearly know the difference between right and wrong. You don't need my teaching. Who will teach this poor person if I don't? How can we actually pass judgments upon the actions and the words of another? Only when we are removed from insight. The only time when we can set aside the conditions for compassion are in the moment in which we face suffering in which we face judgment, in which we face alienation. If we are not willing to set aside the conditions for compassion, it is always hidden to us. When there are no conditions, when there is no conditions, we see ourselves in another form endlessly before us. Wisdom allows us to see the emptiness of separation, Compassion teaches us how to live in that emptiness. One thing I would like to read to you. Any bodhisattva who undertakes the practice of meditation should cherish one thought only. In attaining perfect wisdom, I will liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe. And yet, when vast, uncountable myriads of beings have been liberated, truly no being has been liberated. Why? Because no bodhisattva who is a true bodhisattva entertains such concepts as self or other. Thus, there are no sentient beings to be liberated and no self to attain perfect wisdom. Meditation is about learning the freedom that comes with unconditional openness, the freedom that comes with unconditional generosity, the freedom that comes with letting go, how every moment of letting go is an act of compassion. That is why this path is called the path of the Bodhisattva, because it teaches us that wisdom of letting go. And in teaching us that, it shows us in every moment the way of compassion. May all beings live with an open heart. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings 
abide in compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.